Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and sponsored by Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Grad Dad's Donuts. This is the 381st episode of Creative Control with Vish Khanna, featuring a panel discussion about the impact of anti-black racism on the stress and anxiety levels of creative and artistic minds. Recorded live on Saturday, February 24th at Workman Arts as part of the 2018 Long Winter Festival in Toronto, Ontario. Comedy Live from Workman Arts in Toronto, Canada, it's Long Night with Beach Tana. On tonight's show, a conversation about the psychological impact of anti-black racism in the arts. I'm your announcer, James Keast. Our house band is the Bicycles. And please welcome our host, the handsomest man in podcasting, Hello, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. Thank you all for being here. You seem like a lovely crowd. Thank you for being here. Are you guys having a good time at Long Winter so far? Great. It's nice to have you here. I'm very thrilled to uh, host this panel here uh, tonight. And uh, the, uh, the topic, the discussion is actually, as James said, about the psychological impact of anti-black racism on artistic minds. And we have a wonderful group of people here that are going to uh, talk about these things. I'm going to ask them each to uh, introduce themselves one at a time. And I'm also gonna ask them to cite any instance where racism impacted them uh, and what uh, methods they employed to process and deal with it. I, I know it's heavy, but I think this will be uh, a helpful talk. And so why don't we begin here? Hi, uh, I'm Coco Galore. I am a comedian and actor in Toronto. Specifically, I am an improviser. In Toronto, we make so much money, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How much money do you have, Coco? Uh, in my pocket? Yeah, in your uh, pocket. About 50 bucks. 50 bucks. That's amazing. That's improv money. That's improv. That's not improv cash. <laughs> um, with improv, it's a little bit different than stand-up because uh, with stand-up comedy, comedians prepare what they're going to say before they get on stage. So there's like an intentional 
uh, kind of aspect to it. When it comes to improv, it's an instinctual art form, which means you're making up everything as you go. So there's a lot more uh, risk Mm-hmm. When it comes to anti-black racism, um, one specific example that I can give is uh, I improvise with another woman, a uh, black woman named Daphne, and um, we walked in the scene and she endowed herself as Cinderella, and another POC, a non-black POC, told her uh, Cinderella was not black. Uh, and this is live on stage, like it happens, Um And the thing with improv is that's very difficult is when that happens, it's awkward and you have to smooth it out. You can't really just stop the scene and be like, nope, can't say that. So my improv partner kind of said, oh, Cinderella can be black. In fact, let me show you Snow White. And I walked out. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So one of the beautiful things about improv, uh, it's a risk because people are coming from the top of their mind, so it's instinctual. But the good part is when you're a trained improviser, you know how to smooth it out through yes ending. Yeah. Yeah, Cinderella is black. Let me show you Snow White. Let me show you you know, various princesses that that we historically know to be white and make them black. Well, I mean, it's an important distinction to make between improvised and, I guess, planned comedy. Yeah. Um, do you, uh, coming from the comedy world, you see a lot of people who have prepared material. Are they dealing with anti-black racism in their material in, in your community? Um, there are... I, I, I'm not a stand-up comedian. There right. are some... Uh, I think more and more. More and more there are communities and comedians, specifically black female comedians, that are starting to deal with it. They will call out how uncomfortable it is for everybody, but we need to talk about it and then insert a joke in there. Um, It's really intelligent uh, stand-up comedians that are able to bring a political topic and yet make you laugh at the same time. Right. Right. And so how did that, that comedian who said that Cinderella isn't white deal with what came next? She stayed quiet because she knew she was wrong. <laughs> so, and when she was corrected in such a smooth fashion, she cannot continue to further block. I've had other instances where you're dealing with it. The thing with improv specifically is people say it and then realize that because they can see your face... So if someone says, Cinderella's not black, my face will be like, excuse me? And they will know instantly that they said something. And so there's this, but you only have like five seconds to correct that because you're there to serve the audience. And so it's this kind of added pressure of uh, being a black improviser and a female improviser, having to do the extra work of knowing how to defend yourself on stage when these things come out. So I gather it's not that's not an isolated incident that you're describing? No. This happens a lot. This happens a lot um, to any kind of marginalization that, you know, it happens to f- if you're a female improviser and you're improvising with a lot of men, it can happen. If you're a queer improviser it can happen people tend to heteronormatize scenes with anti-black racism specifically I think one of the things that's happening is we are now kind of doing these inclusion groups which is all BIPOC but there's anti-black racism from other non-black POCs that also occur that also occur 
Oh. And so that also has to be. So it's just a lot of psychological work while you're trying to just do art. I feel like, I mean, comedy has come under fire quite a bit for uh, for these kinds of things, these notions, th- this notion of pushing the envelope, what's appropriate, what isn't. I think we'll come back to that. I think it'll come up uh, again as we go. But uh, yeah, I appreciate those examples. How about a hand for Coco for being here? Thank you, Coco. Thank you. We move down the stage. Uh, please introduce yourself, sir. Good evening. My name is Keith Cunningham. I'm a psychotherapist by practice, and I work both within a non-profit organization as, as well as I do my own private practice. And so when I think about anti, anti-black racism, I see it within my professional role and also my professional role with colleagues as well as my professional role as a psychotherapist. I will extend that by simply saying that what I see is also evidence of microaggression where individual will say little things that is offensive to a black person and then when you speak about it they were like oh i never meant anything about it and so those are some of the pieces and the other piece when we think about what because of the individuals that i work with i work with young people 14 12 to 17 up to 21 and oftentimes those individuals in high school and so when you think about a black person within the high school system who oftentimes does not learn about their history, who oftentimes are put in a mainstream because the individual are put in boxes because of their own academic skills. And so oftentimes when I run into young persons, their challenges are around stress and anxiety. And stress and anxiety, not only from academic side, but also their interpersonal relationship with peers. Peers sometimes are not very kind to individuals who look different. Right. Because again, we often see things through black and white. And everything that is white is often seen as good, and everything that is black is often seen as not so good. So we have young persons who are young people of color, particularly so because not only black individuals, but also other individuals who do not fall within the dominant race, which we will define today as the black race, the white race, sorry. And so those persons are challenged by that. And so individuals often struggle, young people often struggle to find themselves in those kind of both systemic and institutional issues that continue to impact their both emotional and psychological existence. Do you feel that these issues are trending upwards, so to speak? Are you seeing more instances of people arriving at? I think... I was in a forum just the other day, and when we think about our South, our neighbor South, when we think about Donald Trump, I think what Donald Trump has done, he has just unleashed what was under the surface. And so people feel more and more comfortable, I would say, in saying things that are offensive to persons who are not white. And so we see a lot of that in my, in my individual sessions with young persons and families, I see that coming out, again, around anxiety and depression. So the fact that it's more in the open, is there any beneficial aspect to that? I have only seen uh, negative attributes you know, because of this, the fact that people are more brazen and feel like they can just say whatever they want. 
but at the same time, I've seen people saying, well, in a way it's good because at least we know how people are actually thinking. What's your take on that? I'm just curious. I think it goes both ways. I think the conversation is happening more, more and people are becoming more engaged. Yeah. We thought we'd be more engaged. And I think there's also the downside because not everybody has a voice, not everybody has a word, not everybody has a language and the courage to challenge. Yes. And so those who don't have the language and the courage to channel to challenge oftentimes are skirted off to the side and they fall in tears, they go home and become stressed, they become angry, they become upset, and so it impacts their lives differently. Right. Whereby others who also speak up also are impacted by it because oftentimes the individuals who are marginalized or discriminated are often the ones who have to speak up for themselves. Right. And it would be interesting to see more white people talking about anti-black racism because again, the work has to be done in that community right. and more so among themselves. Right. You're dealing with people who are suffering from stress and anxiety. Do you get to a point where you can identify racism as a source of their stress and anxiety? Is that something you can do? I think if we just think back from the beginning, we think about the transatlantic slave experience all the way through the plantation. When we talk about the, Jimmy, the, the Willie Lynch experience where it, it speaks about training or breaking a man similar to how he breaks a horse and so you lead the person around. And I think what has been happening is that we the, the, the more dominant group or the white group or slave, slave, slave owners, they set up, a system was set up and was designed to control. And so we see oftentimes where that is playing out among black and white in our society. Right, okay. We'll get to more, but uh, how about a hand for Keith? Thank you, Keith, so much for being here. We move down beside Keith there. Hello, my name is Sadani. I am a rapper, an art facilitator, and a mother. Well, I think most recently, my most, my most interesting, most recent experience with anti-black racism, um, I opened a show for Lido Pimienta at the Drake Underground uh, last week, Saturday. And I have a song called I Am, and one of the lines in the song says, I am on welfare, therefore I am violent. And somebody after my show tweeted me, so I cannot identify the person because they had a little gray emoji thing. Faceless? The Faceless, yeah. not an egghead, because oh. I'd say it was an egghead if it was an egghead. Right. Faceless being told me, uh, don't forget to pick up your welfare check. And I, I laughed it off because I thought, hey, you know, I'm stepping up in life, getting, you know, the online racist hate. That's always, you know, that's always, you always know that you're leveling up when. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I don't think I've, I've have any sort of process for how I deal with things like that because it's an ongoing experience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's things that I'm, kind of like learning and discovering every day. And like my experiences being a single black mom also intersect with my experiences being an artist because when I step up, when I step off of the stage, I'm treated like who I am. I'm treated like a single black mother. So 
I can't talk about an isolated experience with anti-black racism and how I deal with it because it's different all the time. I can't sure. deal with the anti-black racism of somebody who was in the audience of a show I was at the same way I would deal with it when I'm, you know, on the bus in my neighborhood because I can't get away with <laughs> I can't get away with all of what I can when I'm dealing with an isolated incident in my community, whereas when I'm online, I have to wear, you know, the professional hat, whatever that's supposed to mean. So if it's an ongoing process, can you describe some of the ways that you cope, so to speak? Some of the ways you try to deal with it so that you can, if not find peace with it, but at least, you know, function? Because I... I just imagine this must be overwhelming for you. Do, is it something you can work out in your music or other ways? Uh, I don't think coping with it is something that I should have to do. Right. I mean, I definitely have to prevent myself from going crazy. I have to prevent myself from being affected by it, but... I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm coping, engaging in conversation with, you know, other black people about ways that we can defend ourselves to anti-black racism, I think is important. I think teaching each other how to have these conversations and how to check people when they make us uncomfortable is important and not necessarily saying, well, how do I cope with this? How do I find peace with this? I'm, I don't ever hope I ever find peace with anti-black racism, ever. No, yeah. I, I was speaking to an artist who was 12 years uh, in the game, so to speak. He was a hip-hop artist who emerged in, yeah, like 2005, and he just put out a record recently. And on the record, he was actually dealing with issues of racism that he'd never really dealt with before throughout his entire catalog. And he said it was time. It just felt like his time. He was older. He felt uh, that he could, you know, he had a better sense of self. It felt like the right time to be outspoken. Do you deal with these things in your work? Does that help? I feel like whether it be on purpose or by accident, my story, I don't go out of my way to directly address anti-black racism. But again, my, my experience kind of encompasses it on its sure. own based on what people perceive. I don't want my story to solely be, you know what I mean? around or about articulating what anti-black racism means to me or how it affects me because it's 2018 people like need to clue in you know what I mean it, I don't I shouldn't have to put it in a song you know what I mean racism makes me sad like I shouldn't have to put it in a song for people to get it yeah <laughs> that's fair all right well, well we're gonna open the floor and we'll have more of a discussion about a hand for Sidani everyone thank you I appreciate those answers. Thank you. We move down. Hello. My name is Shireen. I am a writer as well as the editor-in-chief of Bashi Magazine. Bop, bop, bop. Um, 
Now, uh, do you want to briefly just talk about Bashi just yeah, for a second? Yeah, so Bashi was actually birthed out of a place of frustration. Um, I identify as a Afro-Jamaican woman on unceded land. So what that means for me in negotiating my identity and being a part of the diaspora is figuring out how to have more constructive conversations about Jamaica that go beyond weed um, and whatever stereotypes people have about Jamaican and Jamaican folks in our communities. So I created Bashi um, as a means to um, sort of facilitate and have a better conversation. So our part of our motto is um, foreign by Jamaican, it's diaspora. So we're hoping to shift the conversation and narratives uh, that folks are having about and on Jamaican folks, things, experiences, and things of that nature. How has this been received thus far? Uh among, your among that community and maybe the greater community, you know? Um, it's been received pretty well. I'm very overwhelmed with the amount of support that I've been shown both locally as well as abroad. Um, and I'm happy to facilitate a conversation and to sort of shift the narrative that's happening. But I do know that it's a lot of work to take on a task like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm working alongside folks who have a very clear vision and who are just amazing and um, I don't think I would be able to do it without their help and their assistance and the community that I've also fostered to keep me going as well. So, I mean, does that speak to the question at hand in some ways, the fact that you initialized this 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 platform? Uh, yeah, it, it, it does. Um, part of one of the things that I've been experiencing the most, or I finally find words to articulate it, is that um, very rarely am I asked to speak about the mundane aspects of my life. Um, I'd like to be invited somewhere where I can just talk about like the weather um, and maybe wallpaper sometimes. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and um, I'd like to exist and I'd like to be boxed outside of um, speaking about my trauma. And I think that one of the tasks that I've been put in in this particular um, spaces that I've occupied um, as like an artist and like um, a person who does things and writer is that I'm often asked to um, perform the task of being the like spokesperson for black folks all around the world. Um, I am the spokesperson for myself and for the identities that I occupy and I tread lightly when I decide to speak beyond folks beyond myself really and beyond my more immediate community and um with bashi or something of that nature and providing a space for other folks to um occupy some of my identities but not all to finally be the ones to have a say and be the ones to share their own narratives because i don't want to be tasked with that all the time and i'd like to exist in a space where my experiences that are often triggering to talk about and to be open with are not uh, the reasons uh, that I'm in, like asked to do things or like, for example, uh, being a diversity fill for people as well, because that often happens in your in my work. The edit, some of the editorial work that I've done exclusively being asked like, hey, can you write about that that one really horrible time? And I'm like, sure, I can definitely do all that emotional labor for you at a price that is um, not good because black women tend to also get paid less in every industry. So, um, but it's something that um, in the spaces that I do choose to occupy that I, I walk in and I walk in and I'm very clear and um, willing to champion 
some of those grievances in this in in the spaces that I do take up. I, uh... <laughs> I, I will say, I mean, having said that, I mean, you, I, I appreciate you being here. I wanted to be here, so... <laughs> I, uh, but I'm I, curious, I, yeah. I mean, there's obviously something about perhaps the topic mm -hmm. provoked something within you. You wanted to participate in this. Yeah. What, why was that, exactly? Well, for one, it's like Black History Month, and I love taking up space at all times of the year, but like particularly during Black History Month. Right. I like taking up this space, which is um, going to be a digital space once it, we're done. And I think that it's important to, to talk about um, and be very unapologetic in doing so. Um, and I love doing these kinds of things in my city. So it okay. was a great opportunity. And I, and I really did want to be a part of it as well. So that's why. Well, Shireen, I appreciate you being here. How about a hand for Shireen? Thank you. And last but not least. Um, my name is Sajay, and I'm a writer. What was the question? I wasn't here. Yes, the question, uh, that's fine. The uh, notion was to cite any instance of um, racism that impacted you and what methods you employed to process and, and deal with it in your work or in any other way. What instances of being alive? Um, that seems to be the trend in the answers thus far, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think Canada is so weird in the sense that, like, I feel like a lot of the racism that I experienced has been in the form of microaggressions, like institutional and microaggressions. It's very polite. Um, and before I knew the word microaggressions, I used to just call it, like, white people being weird. Um, yeah, and like saying weird things that I'm just like, why would you say that? But, but that's kind of what I want to de delve into a little bit. I mean, that's that's a these microaggressions are the worst because they are legion. Like every day they right. occur, right? Yeah. Um, and then like they can be so insidious because because they are so subtle. Um, there's like a there's like a level of gaslighting that happens too when you mention it, and it's like. Oh, like that's just one thing. Like what? Like so, what? Someone assumed you had, like you know what I mean? It's just, it just has so many levels to it, and it's um, you can start to think that you're like going mad. Yeah. Um, in terms of like how I deal with it, I guess I just kind of like I unplug a lot. I limit. Sometimes I limit the kinds of conversations I have with people who are not black. Like there are just certain things that I don't want to discuss. Like, I've worked in offices and, you know, after some horrible news thing happens, it's like, I don't want to talk to you about, you know, whatever the latest police brutality thing that just happened is, you know what I mean? And it's, also, and it's always from, it's not always a place, from a place of like, I want to see if you're okay. It's almost like you're prodding me to hmm. maybe say something or like, I don't know, it's always from this really weird place. So I just try to limit the kinds of conversations that I have with people that I feel like will trigger something in me, um, especially if I see that it's not from a genuine place or them actually wanting to learn. What are your primary platforms of expression? Uh, I'm not sure if we got to that when you introduced yourself. Um, well, you're a, a writer yeah. and you do a show. Yeah, so I'm a writer. I do a podcast. Um, it's 
little behind right now, but I do do a, I do a music podcast. You're behind on production, are you? Yes. Oh, <laughs> happens to the best of us. Right. I'm trying to catch up right now, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I just I, I do a music podcast called Free Goods, and um, we just talk about like new music, but like you know conversations when talking about music and cultural produ- production. These conversations just kind of veer, you know, into into race or into culture. Sometimes that's what I wonder on my show also. Yeah. Um. But yeah. But definitely in my writing, like I'm, I feel like I'm always writing about about culture, about Black womanhood, and about music or or and the ways that the, all those things kind of intersect. Yeah. I just kind of focus on on those particular things. Well, Sonali made the point that she shouldn't have to cope. I mean, I've I've been using all the wrong words up here because <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to negotiate this too because part. Of- how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why I gathered everyone up here is because I thought this could be instructive for other people mm-hmm. uh, and, and getting your personal experiences. So, and, I, and I'm trying to be careful about the words I use because you're all saying it's hard to cope with something you have to deal with every single day. Right. It's beyond coping. It's just living. Yeah. Right? So I guess I'm wondering if you, through your writing, through your podcast, mm-hmm. you learn things. When you're talking to people, you say you, you, you try to mostly talk to black people at some points. You try to unplug from talking to other people. Like, what do you learn in those moments like, that might be helpful for people who are going through similar struggles? I just learned that everyone's experience looks, it's similar at its core, but it does have, it does take on different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, like I learned, you know, things from my friends that have kids that anti-black racism looks slightly different and like the institutions that you have to come into contact with, um, it looks different than the stuff that I have to navigate every day. And it's the stuff that I'm sure my mom went through as well, but mm-hmm. like I feel like maybe generations before us didn't, they didn't have the same language and they probably just didn't have the time to like, you know, think about it the way that we do. Like, they're just like, like kids got to eat, like no one cares kind of thing. Well, I think there was also a sense that nothing could be done. Yeah. And we're at a point now where we have these kinds of conversations and, and there's mobilization going on, on a real level. Right. And so there's within that there's hope, but then within that there's also tension and stress and anticipation. Right. That, this change might be coming finally of some kind and then America does 
the what, weirdest what thing ever. Does. And Alex, I thought, you know, and that's the vacuum you live in in a liberal arts vacuum. You kind of think things are, nah, no one thinks like, no one's racist, you mm. know? This has been a huge wake-up call the last couple of years right. for some of us, you know. I, I'm sorry, just to clarify, I knew most of you were racist. No, not you. I've, I've you know, we've, I encounter it too, and it's now right. it seems louder and amplified, and I'm trying to figure out if there's a healthy offshoot of that um, somehow. Of it being louder? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think what's happening in the States, it's, in, it's emboldened a lot of people, but I just kind of think that for black people, it's just kind of like, oh, we were just waiting for y'all to catch up. Like, yeah. it's, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they are realities that we've been living and everyone is like, oh my God, like I didn't know. And then we're just like, how did you not? Yes, exactly. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's just kind of the space that we've been living in for a really long time. Um, and I think that's part of, of different levels of privilege is that you have the ability to be like, to separate yourself from it and to yeah. not see it. Okay. Also, I just like want to add to like as an interjection, like I think it's really important to localize our racism. A lot of the time people think that racism is like only a thing in the U.S. or yeah. only a thing abroad. And like Canada is mad racist. There's like an entire history of that doesn't get spoken about, like particularly to brown, um, to indigenous and black folks that like is just not even spoken about and other uh, marginalized groups as well. And I think that at least for this year, when I'm, when I'm talking about racism, that I'm being very sure to be like, yes, Canada, yes, Toronto, yeah. yes, likely in your neighborhood as well. Yeah. So I, I think it's one of the things is to realize that the racism is, we're not beyond it because we're polite and like poutine, so. <laughs> yeah, I think because we live in a quote unquote multicultural city that, um, we think that we're a better than America for sure, um, and we're then smug. Yeah, we're smug about it, and then you know I'm sure that there's people who also think that they're like better than the rest of Canada. It's like, oh, that that only happens in like Saskatchewan. I'm like, it very doesn't. So, you no, know, it doesn't. like just like I always say that there's like I call it like hipster racism. Like if you scroll in the like go on like any Vice article about race and go to the comment section and you will see it's someone who probably lives right in Parkdale who's like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean so it's yeah. it's definitely here and I think that it's it's important to acknowledge that all right how about a round of applause for Sajay we have to take a, a very quick break we're running out of time but we're gonna take a very quick break and we'll be back with more with our panel thank you so much for being here thanks again to our panel be right back We're back. We're back, and we don't have uh, a lot of time, but uh, thank you for being here. Thanks again to uh, uh, the panel up on stage. I want to open the floor here a little bit uh, for a couple more questions before we uh, have to wrap this up. Uh, and Keith, I, I want to start with you because I think the stigma around mental illness, stress, and anxiety uh, has been, it's very difficult for some people to even process that these things exist. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there are more conversations about it and people are being more open uh, about uh, ways they're dealing with things in a therapeutic manner. Um, have you found that in your practice? Do you feel like there's more of a, an op I, I mean, I'm sorry, as we're talking now, there was this horrible shooting in, in the States and mental health got brought up and I was listening to people say like, 
these people, sh the, this shooter should have just been, you know, taken by the police to the mental health facility. But then that's not how police react to people who are having mental health issues. That's the opposite. If, if someone has a mental health issue, they use that as an opportunity to actually, you know, behave violently and, and fatally in some cases. So is the, do we understand mental health well enough to try to figure this out right now? Do you, is it in a good place somehow? <laughs> I don't know if we can say that we understand it very well. I think we are getting there. Before I speak on that, I would also want to go back to adding to what was said before, though. I think when we look at racism, and I like when you said localizing racism yeah. in Canada, when you look at the Children Protective Services, when you look at incarceration, when you look at different groups, the highest population of, of Young, especially among young people, is a black young youth. In, and we talk about prison and the Children Protective Services. So when we start looking at those and peel those back, then we start seeing racism and other forms of discrimination and, and systemic and institutional issues surfacing in there. What I think when we think about mental health is that we don't see racism as traumatic. And we have to start calling yeah. it that. Yeah. It is very traumatic, and so we have to start looking at how do we, how do, how does trauma shows up in our lives? It does not only show up in our behavior; it shows up in our feelings, our emotions, and our thoughts, because each influences the other. And so, when a behavior starts surfacing, oftentimes we will say that, "Oh, those aggressive young people are those aggressive black people." It is more than that. It's about how it resides in our body. There's a psychologist, a psychiatrist in the States, he worked out of Boston, one, one, one institution in Boston, who said the body holds the secret right. and holds the story. So what happens to us, it sits in our body and often sits in the limbic system. So we have to be mindful of how our experiences, and so we also have to talk about intergenerational trauma as well, as well as multi-generational trauma, because we talk about traumatic experience being conveyed through not only direct experiences, but experiences through hearing or seen and oftentimes we see we talk about police brutality that is now showing up not only in the in the electronic media but also social media as well as print media and so when we read and we see and we hear stories about our individuals about our black people then that comes in and it us because it either reminds us of experiences that we have had personally or it could be experiences that we have heard from our family members our friends our acquaintances persons from the community. Right. And so that seeps into our system and then start affecting us. We go to our bed thinking about what could that family be going through? What is the experience of that family? What is the experience of that individual? Oftentimes, we also see many, many single mothers because what? The dads are in prison. When we compare the crime with the white, white, their white yeah. counterpart, yeah. then the crimes are similar, but the penalties are greater for people of color. So what does that say and how does that sit with individuals? And so we have to be mindful of that. And I saw, again, I will point to it that we have to start looking at racism from a traumatic lens. I, I agree with you and that's well put. Does anyone, uh, again, opening the floor, does anyone want to speak to this notion of whether or not this trauma that Keith is highlighting and its relationship to racism is appreciated enough? I gather uh, like generally by the general population I, I don't think it is and that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to gather you here. I think it's it's interesting how the conversation around 
uh, multi-generational and intergenerational trauma is coming up now because part of what racism teaches people and teaches us is that black people feel less. We get, there's in, in all facets of racism, it teaches us that whatever trauma and whatever pain, whatever it is that we're taking on, it's not seen as or measured up in the same way as it is with other people experiencing the same things in the system. That's why medical racism exists. Right. You know what I mean? Our good friend John River, you know what I mean, had a horrible experience based on, you know, a medical racism in the fact that you're, you can go into spaces and talk about the trauma, talk about the pain that you're feeling, and it's not seen as relevant. So I feel like before we're even able to talk about, you know what I mean, things that, we're, we're just throwing terms out here, multi-generational, intergenerational racism, and we're not breaking down the root and the definition of these things in order to carry the thread through because it, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's like hitting a glass wall for a lot of people. You know what I mean? We talk about racism. You say that it hurts. You say that it causes all kind of, all these, it's all of these types of stress. These are conversations that we've been having forever. Mm. We've been having these conversations forever, you know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know if it's a matter of whether it's, it's appreciated, whether it's understood, or do you need to see like physical evidence of it? But the physical evidence is there. Yeah. It's there, and that's why we're having these conversations, you know? Um, I wanted to make mention of, because you, you mentioned, you know, the shooting that happened in Florida and, you know, people talking about mental health. I feel like that's a great example and opportunity to parallel how people with mental health who are people of color are treated in comparison to a white man, you know what I mean, who is said to have mental health issues. You can go into a school and shoot 17 people, you know what I mean? And there were conversations prior to about his mental state. You know what I mean? And what kind of things could have been done to intervene, you know what I mean? Right. In comparison to, you know what I mean, they're talking about possibly allowing uh, teachers to have guns, yeah. but a black man named Philandro Castle was a reg had a registered gun and he was a teacher and he still died. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like having to constantly draw these extreme, like having to constantly draw these extreme examples, you know what I mean? It's, it's traumatic, and I feel yeah. it in my body, you know yeah. what I mean? Here is the exhibit A, you know what I mean? Like, right. there's no glass. Like, you can hear the shuddering in my breath, you know what I mean? Having these conversations are hard, you know what I mean? And I understand how it might be difficult for somebody who's not experiencing these things to have the conversation as well, but it's not hard because of trauma, or it's not hard because of, you know what I mean, your own experiences. It's hard because of guilt. It's hard because of how we're socialized and how people are socialized to address, you know what I mean, truth. You might not necessarily be having to, or being held, you're, you might not necessarily be held accountable for a particular action, but to, but to participate in a conversation means that, you know what I mean, you're holding the people around you accountable, you know what I mean? You're holding yourself accountable for maybe being a bystander or, you know what I mean? Just perpetuating the existence of racism in different facets. Hmm. So, you know, I think when we talk about things like mental health and, you know, how systemic racism and intergenerational racism affects 
us, you know what I mean? Like we have to be very, very meticulous and careful about, you know what I mean? The things that we're saying. Cause you know, that example with the shooter in, in Florida, Florida you yeah. know what I mean? It's traumatic in so many spaces and in so many communities. Cause Philandro Castle wasn't two years ago. That wasn't two years ago, you right. know? And he, again, had a registered gun, you know what I mean? He, it, uh, he, 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 his gun was licensed, you know what I mean? I don't know. I, no, I understand where you're coming from. Do, uh, does anyone else want to comment on this or follow up? Uh, these, these conversations are only really productive if you're going back into your communities, your respective communities, and doing something about it. Otherwise, we're just um, opening wounds and we're just like bearing our souls, um, and then everything goes back to the to the same thing. So I always try to leave in the spaces that I occupy with telling folks that if you come here and you're seeing people who are willing and able to talk about their uh, industries as well as their personal lives, to take that and know that it was a very a slice of every day every hour, every minute experience that we navigate the, the spaces in which we occupy. And if there is a real concern to do something about it or to shift the dynamic and or narrative and or just help people because that's the right thing to do is to um, go back in your communities and do something about it. So beyond the conversation, maybe like this one or the ones that you would take back to your community, what do you do exactly? I mean, is it? Oh, that's not for me. That's not. For that's you not to for say. me to tell. That's not for me to tell. I. The only thing I have to do is be black and die. So everybody else, they have to do the work of figuring out what to do. There is a whole ass Google, yep, and Google you can do the back. intellectual labor of going out and seeing how what changes can be made. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to add to that because when we say Google is free, I've met resistance from people. Yeah, but what do I go? Sorry, I'm a comedian, so I'm going to mimic everybody. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Um, you know, you meet resistance like, yeah, but what do I Google? There's like, there's conflicting information. And the one line that I'm just going to say is go with the side that's marginalized. Like, listen to people's pain. Because when you're, in like, when you're in spaces and you experience systemic violence, like silent violence, it's also just very lonely. Like, if I'm in a group of white people, there's 10 and I'm the only one, and there's microaggression happening, and no one speaks up, it's very, very lonely. And that speaks to the trauma that... I didn't have to carry. And that's the reason why we build the spaces that we build for ourselves so that we can have kinship and talk to people that look like us and may experience something similar, of course, in different forms, but still similar. Um, I think that people have to just do the work. We've done the work. We've done the work in learning how to work in your spaces, how to speak your language, how to do work in your corporations. It's time for you guys to do the work so that like, we could also just live free and be free and just be a minimalist and have white walls. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, appreciate wallpaper. We want to do that. We want to do that too. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. I, I, I would that. say... Um, hold each other accountable. I, that's just piggybacking off of what um, Shireen and Coco said, but hold each other accountable. 
even when you're not amongst, as practice, when you're not amongst black people or people of color, when, you know, it's just, you know, your white homies and somebody cracks a kind of racist but not racist joke, check it. Be like, that wasn't all the way funny, you know? And bring those practices outside of your, you know what I mean, white spaces. Because trust and believe it's definitely not harder to do that than it is to actually deal with the you know awkward okay i have to laugh through this because i might be robbed of an opportunity if i don't you know yeah just hold each other accountable when you're not with uh your friends of color all right that's well put okay uh, unfortunately we are out of time uh and uh, this discussion could have gone a lot longer i want to thank you all for for doing this uh I want to go down the panel and ask each of you to uh, tell people where they can learn more about you, uh, basically. And if you have any final thoughts about this topic or anything else, uh, feel free to say it. I just want to give you some time uh, because you all do important work and I want people to find out where they can learn more about it. So why don't we start with Shereen? Yeah, if anybody is interested in the work that I do and or would like to commission me for some work intellectual labor and all those good things <laughs> you can go to www.shharine.co and it's the same handle on twitter and you can go to bashimagazine.com tomorrow because we go live So again, my name is Sadani. I'm a rapper. You could actually catch me performing right here on this stage later this evening. Um, online, it's S-Y-D-A-N-I triple E. Um, yeah, that's where you find everything. Writing <laughs> stuff, song stuff, facilitator stuff. Yeah. All right, Sadani, thank you so much. I, I actually found Keith using Google. That's how we met. We, I found you on Google, and uh, it was great. Well, thank you. You can also find me in Psychology Today as well. My profile is there, and it speaks about my work as well. And something that I would encourage you, there are many young persons out there, because I, and I particularly talk about young people because there are many young people who are struggling with their feelings, thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that is really causing them causing them to not perform at a level or to function at, at, ma at maximum. So I would encourage you, if you know a young person, you may not know what is going on with them, just visit a counseling session with them, or a, psychothera a psychotherapist, a, 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 a social worker, a psychologist, get some professional help and then help your child or help your friend's child or your, fr or your, your relative's child to do better because the conversation is beneficial having talk therapy. It helps us to process what's going on. It helps us to externalize. And when we externalize, then our body relaxes and we sleep better, our appetite increases. So those fancy things, one in impacts the other. So if we start seeing, if we start understanding the ripple effect of the mind, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, and the behavior, and see the connections between them, then we will start applying more around, we'll become more, concern about our mental state and also go for support as well. So I would quickly say, take up the reach out. If you feel like you are struggling, reach out, 
have a conversation and have somebody guide you. And it doesn't mean that you have to come to a professional. Just reach out to some listening ear, some caring person, and that can also be helpful. Thank you, Keith. Before we move on, I know that cost can inhibit some people from seeking uh, professional help uh, because our uh, mental health isn't subsidized the way it should be in this country. Uh, could you have any resources for people other than um, what you mentioned? The there? sad thing about it is that there is not much resources, free resources for persons 18 and over. Yeah. That comes with a cost. I think there is some push for OIP to cover that up yeah. to a certain age. That is still on the books. That okay. is still not rolled out yet. Until such time, sadly, individuals up to 21 can get some, some, some free psychotherapy or talk therapy. But sadly, the, the numbers are very limited. Okay. We often reach individuals 0 to 18. Some, as I said, some exceptions where you go up to 21, but sadly enough, the resources are very limited okay. and the cost is very, it's, it's, a session goes, is, is more, it's $100 plus yeah. and not everybody has That's it. That's right. And then if we're going to look at trauma and we're going to look at anti-black anti racism and the impact on the black community, oftentimes who don't, who are, po are poverty-stricken because of all the other things that contribute to that, then we talk about individuals who sometimes don't get the support. That's why I brought it up, and I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, we move down. You can find me, cocogalore.com, C-O-K-O-Galore, G-A-L-O-R-E. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I produce uh, and uh, play in comedy shows, like uh, Black and Funny, which is just highlights black comedians in improv, sketch, and stand-up, and shows like Kiss and Tell, where it's we celebrate sexuality of uh, BIPOC as well as queer folk. So you can just find me online and come and support local um, comedy shows. Thank you, Coco. Um, you can just go to my website, um, sajayelder.com, S-A-J-A-E, elder, like the word elder, dot com. Um, uh, what else? You have a podcast? I do. I, why do I not remember this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to help. I have a podcast called Free Goods. I talk about new music, and basically, I pretty much just like bully all my friends to like put me onto new songs because I'm lazy. Um, so that's pretty much the premise of the show. They just like come and tell me what music to listen to when we talk about it. Okay. Um, and I'm on like all social media, Twitter, um, at Fiasco. I don't advise you to follow me though, but um, <laughs> she's hilarious. I'm wretched. Um, <laughs> but yeah. What's the name of the podcast again? Did you say? Free Goods. Free Goods. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, that's, that's Sajay. Yeah. My name is Vish Khanna. I have a podcast called Creative Control. Some of you are listening to it right now. Some of you are on it right now. Thank you for being here. It's Creative with a K, Control with a K. You can find it on all iOS and uh, Android platforms. This is how you promote a bad podcast. This is what I'm doing right now. No, it's a good, it's a good show. It's a fine quality show. And uh, you can learn more about me at Vish Khanna. Follow me on Twitter at Vish Khanna and Facebook and all that stuff. I want to thank uh, the Long Winter Crew, Workman Arts, uh, Tia Gordon and Aisha Alpha for helping me uh, get guests on tonight's show as well. 
and I'd like to thank all of you for being here. Once again, a huge round of applause for my panel. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good night. Bicycles, thank you very much. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Have you enjoyed my interviews with Raekwon, Bonnie Prince Billy, Steve Albini, Angel Olsen, Deltron 3030, Buffy St. Marie, Daniel Lanois, Nels Klein, Bob Nastanovich, Griel Marcus, and the Constantines? Would you like to hear more interviews on creative control? If the answer is yes, first of all, thank you. Secondly, please consider giving a monthly pledge to this show over at patreon.com slash creative control. You can pledge whatever monthly amount you like and adjust or cancel whenever you wish. For a limited time, anyone who pledges $10 a month or more receives a creative control t-shirt. All proceeds go towards keeping this podcast alive. Again, please visit patreon.com slash creative control and pledge today. 